Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello one and all and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference with me, Joe Haddo. I hope wherever you're listening from, you're keeping safe and well. And today's episode is a must-listen for any crime fans. We connected Belfast, or just outside of Belfast, with Cromarty up in Scotland and down to me in London. That's me, Steve Kavanagh and Ian Rankin who we'll be hearing from in just a moment. A reminder that if you follow us on social media, at Off, each week we're giving a listener a chance to win one of the books from one of the authors that we feature on the podcast. Ian Rankin's new novel is up for grabs this week, and we'll announce another giveaway on social media every Friday. So do follow us on Twitter or Instagram or on Facebook if you use those sort of things and keep up to date with art competitions. And of course, please do keep spreading the word of Book Off. If you like what you hear, you can uh, rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or just tell a bookish friend, perhaps, who might like what we do. Anyway, enough of this rambling. Let's get on with the podcast. And as ever, I'm joined by two fabulous authors who'll be going head-to-head in a war of the words a little later on in the book-off. My first guest is a multi-million worldwide bestseller of over 30 books, which have been adapted for radio, the stage and the screen. Here to talk about his latest John Rebus novel, A Song for the Dark Times, it's only Ian Rankin. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and also joining me is a writer who practiced civil rights law for many years before retiring from the law. No, he's not that old to write full time. Here to tell us about his new legal thriller, Fifty Fifty. It's that there, Steve Kavanagh. Hello to you. Hello. What a booming and resounding hello from both of you. It's great to have you both here on on the pod. I'm sat looking out at a very bleak bit of weather here in in London. Um, how is it where you are in? Um, well, uh, you you find me in Cromarty, which is up on the northeast coast of Scotland, up past Inverness, um, where I've got a holiday home, and it is pretty murky at the moment. I'm looking out onto the Cromarty Firth. It's actually improving slightly. It's been pretty grim for a few days now, but when you get a nice day, you really, really, really appreciate it. <laughs> and isn't there something to be said for a nice, a, a rainy day like like today, perhaps? For reading, it's great because you don't feel guilty then for sort of curling up and just getting lost in some books. Yeah, that's I do like reading with a fire on. 
I, yeah, I mean, we've got the heating on up here. We've had we've had heating on since July. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, are you over in uh, in Northern Ireland? I am. Yeah, just outside Belfast. So it's it's raining here, but the rain is lovely and warm, which is which is awful. There's nothing worse than warm rain. Yeah, it's it's all right. It's been fine. We've had a bit of nice weather, but the last few weeks it's just been lashing with rain. So typical. Typical. Um, now, I can't help thinking that a couple of months ago in July, had we been in different circumstances, um, we would have all shared a, a, a nice chat, catch up and probably a couple of drams of something at Harrogate, uh, the crime festival, which, of course, couldn't happen or couldn't happen in real life, as it were, as it did happen virtually. Um, so I haven't I haven't seen either of you for, for a long old time. Um, and yet here we are about to talk about two new books so it's not like you haven't been busy is it uh, no no well we 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 have to do something you know there's only there's only so only so many jigsaws you can do you know i've been <laughs> i've been watching mr rankin's twitter and he's been doing jigsaws him and mark billingham have got jigsaw i think, oh, I think him they're going to launch their own line of jigsaws rebus jigsaws <laughs> i think that's the secret of this uh but uh, apart from that you have to do something to pay the bills so yeah we've been we've been busy writing away and yeah. getting ready. Yeah, I was I was pretty I was pretty lucky because um I started writing the new book before the lockdown and I did the bulk of the research including a long road trip just before the lockdown. The only thing that I wasn't able to do was go out to Edinburgh Airport to check something because it was more than 5 miles from my home and that was at the when the lockdown was at its height. So that had to depend on the imagination. But the book was mostly written, the latest one was mostly written during the lockdown, definitely all edited during the lockdown, and thankfully set in the summer of 2019. <laughs> it's called A Song for the Dark Times, and when I first picked it up, I thought, blimey, turn this around quickly. But of course, it's not um, about these current dark times, as in COVID times. As you say, it was written before that uh, so it's it's almost like you knew you knew something was coming <laughs> it's one of those bizarre things i mean when i started writing the book which or planning a book in september 2019 i thought we were living in pretty dark times um generally speaking we had the kind of rise of the far right and and extremism across europe and elsewhere we had trump in the white house brexit ongoing i thought this is as dark as it gets surely um, I can see resonances with the 1930s all around me. Um, so that was it. That was, and I got this quote from Bertolt Brecht, um, you know, during dark times, will there still be songs? Yes, there will be songs about the dark times. And I, that, that just, that was it. I was, I was rocking and rolling. But yeah, who knew what was around the corner? And, um, you know, the one thing of, as a crime writer is you're looking at the, at the lockdown thinking, fantastic opportunity here for all kinds of stories to be told. Yeah, is there going to be a sort of COVID crime wave of books coming out? Do you think? Can you, is that is that a prediction for the for the crime genre? I, I mean, I, I, I hope not. I mean, I would think. I mean, for several reasons. Number one is who the hell wants to read about this stuff when you've just lived through it? You know, we're going to want escapism. We're not going to want to confront this again. But also, I think crime fiction is at its best when it's taken time to digest what's just happened in history, and then it it brings it back. So, for example. The Northern Ireland crime novel, the crime novel involving the Troubles. During the height of the Troubles, you got very little, if any, crime fiction coming out of Ireland, specifically Northern Ireland. When the Troubles were, you know, easing, um, we began to get the the, the the beginnings of crime fiction to 
explain to the readers what just happened and why it happened. And so I think there needs to be a little period of reflection before we get novels about COVID. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It does take some time for everything to sort of digest and go into different parts of your brain. Plus, you can't have a crime novel set during COVID or lockdown because no one's allowed out of the house. So it'd be really easy to spot the killer. There'd be 15 COVID serial killer novels and in every single one, the postman will be the villain. You know, <laughs> it's a bit pointless, really. Ah, but heists, you're, you're not, you know, you're, you're, thinking, you're thinking too far inside the box. Any, I mean, any number of heists could have been taking place behind these locked-up jeweler shops and five-star hotels. Um, anything could have been happening, and we would not be aware of it because they're all boarded up. And uh, So, you know, that's, that was my thinking, really, was a kind of five-star hotel heist. Everyone's got they've, got, they've broken in, tunneled underneath the hotel and stolen all the toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> Which was worth a king's ransom at one point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think for a few days, you know, you could, you basically were were uh, better off having toilet roll than gold, weren't you, in lockdown? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to go for the crude response to that, which would be somewhere along the lines of, have you ever tried wiping your backside and gold but uh... let's let's talk a little bit more about um rebus in this novel then in um he heads up to uh north of scotland and he's helping his daughter tell us more about the situation and the story that you've told in this book yeah i mean i wanted to get rebus out of his comfort zone and i wanted to take me out of my comfort zone his daughter lives way up on the north coast of scotland um and I thought it'd be interesting to bring the two of them together. I've not used her much in the books for a long, long time. I got the notion of um, her partner disappearing, her phone and her dad, and him, of course, the knight in shining armour, as he thinks of himself, tarnished though he be, jumping in the car and driving up north to help or hinder any investigation. And it was kind of allied to an interest that I'd, I'd got in um, internment camps, World War II internment camps. I'd found out there were a lot of these, over a thousand of them, in fact, in the UK. And uh, it was, you know, you were locking up your neighbours, you were locking up the Italian ice cream seller or the, the, the nice German family who ran the delicatessen. Suddenly they were all, a lot of them were sent to the Isle of Man. The Isle of Man basically became one floating prison camp for these internees. Um, and it just, it, 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 it's a light bulb moment where I just thought, you know, this is kind of where we're heading again, it seemed to me, in politics with, People, you know, if you're not my friend, you're my enemy. If you don't think the same way as me, we're an implacable foes in terms of politics and 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 philosophy of life. And I just thought, you know, there's a resonance there between the way we used to do things. Just, you know, I don't trust you, so we're going to put you all in a camp. And the way that, especially in Eastern Europe, the kind of rise of um, the far right, I thought we're not we're not too far away from this stuff happening again. So that was the dark times I thought I would write about. So I managed to find a way. Because there were these um, internment camps dotted around the north of Scotland, um, I found a way to sort of bring the two together. Rebus visiting his daughter because her partner's gone missing, and also this plot may revolve around um, an archaeological or a historical dig at a disused internment camp. And do you th- do you think, just hearing you chat there, do you think we've sort of lost the ability to to debate now? Because it seems to me on like you were saying, if you're not my friend, i.e. you don't believe the things that I believe, then you're my enemy. It seems to me that it's just arguments now. Uh, no one is actually sort of listening to another point of view. Yeah, I mean, everything's becoming polarised, simplified, which means polarised, 
and there's no middle ground. The middle ground seems to be disappearing. But you need that middle ground. Without middle ground, there's nowhere to debate. There's no room for debate. And without debate, you don't change minds. You simply don't change minds peaceably. So, yeah, I mean, I do worry about that. And things like the internet and Twitter and everything else, you know, just everything is very simplistic. It's got to be done very quickly. It's, and there's a lot of knee-jerk reactions to stuff. There's a lot of fake news, as we all know. A lot of people reacting very quickly to fake news. And that's what makes the headlines. And then the truth comes out. You know, it's that thing about a lie is halfway around the world before the truth can get its shoes on. Um, there's a lot more of that now because the world is moving at a much faster rate. So all of that plays into the hands of demagogues and, you know, extremists. And at the same time, people are looking for simple answers to complex questions and they're looking for simple comforts. And as we found in, at the start of World War II, people were comforted by the fact that anybody with a foreign name was locked up and therefore couldn't do them harm in any way, shape or form. And eventually, the reason that we started opening up these internment camps in World War II and releasing the people was partly the media and partly the public saying, this is ridiculous. You know, these people are not our enemy. These people are our friends. What are we doing? But it took time for that to come about. And yeah, I do, you know, it seemed to me for a while there, and it still does, I guess, that we were reliving the late 20s and early 1930s and, uh, you know, with potentially terrifying consequences. Yeah. Well, speaking of changing minds, Steve, your latest novel is 50-50, and it's about two sisters. They're on trial for murder and they both accuse each other. Uh, can you tell us a little more about Alexandra and Sophia and the story of, of this new novel? Yes. Well, I mean, it's, so there's some themes within this book which are quite similar to what Ian was talking about there. But the basic sort of setup is there's a 911 call made. And it's from Alexandra Avellino who calls, the, asks for the police and says she just found her father murdered and her sister Sophia did it and the, the police get there quick, she's still in the house and she has a knife. And then there's another 911 call from Sophia Avellino who says, I've just found my father murdered, my sister Alexandra killed him, get here fast. So both women are blaming each other. They have a very toxic relationship as sisters um, due to a traumatic incident which happened in their past and one of them has killed the father who is a former mayor of New York but you don't know which one and the story follows their arrest uh, through to their trial so one of the sisters is represented by Eddie Flynn who's the series character and Eddie's a former con artist who became a trial lawyer in New York City and the other character the other lawyer who's representing the other sister is uh, Kate Brooks who's a pretty new lawyer at a big firm and she's sort of understanding and going through what a lot of young, bright and talented female lawyers go through at big firms, which is a huge amount of sex discrimination and sexual harassment. So they're both sort of drawn together in this trial and they both believe that their client is innocent. But there's a third narrative, a third narrator, should I say, uh, and that's simply known as she. And that's the killer who's one of the sisters, but you don't know who it is. So it's a pretty good setup. It gives me lots of room to maneuver and and uh, kill lots of people while we're getting to the trial and have lots of greasy fun. But one of the things, that, an intriguing thing I found when I was researching this is that in 2016, just after Trump got into the White House, 
the crows and the ravens returned to New York City. They had sort of left for a long time and went upstate, but they started coming back in droves and building nests and uh, overpasses and stuff like this. And I thought, that's just not, you know, a weird, the sort of the, the bird that's associated with death has come back to New York. Now Trump is in the White House. So a lot of the big deals with the sort of the 50-50 divide in America um, and how split the country is. That was just, so that was very interesting what Ian was saying, you know, and you were saying as well about there's a lack of debate. It's very hard to have a debate when your opponent is just a bare-faced liar. And I think that's where debate has fallen down. But I, I, I think it's good that there are two sides. What you really never want in a society is only the beat of one drum. Um, like somewhere in like North Korea, where there's only one point of view, buddy, or, you know, you'll just be whisked away in the night somewhere. You know, there was a, Christopher Hitchens used to talk about his friend, Dr. Israel Chirac, who was head of the, um, the Human Rights League uh, in Israel. And he used to phone up uh, Dr. Chirac and say, well, how's things going? And Dr. Chirac would say, there are encouraging signs of polarization. So I think having that two sides um, is always a kind of a good thing. And hopefully the two balance each other out. But it's hard to have a debate at the moment. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree. Um, and fascinating about the Ravens. Yeah, it's just really weird. They just suddenly came back. Yeah. So I thought, well, once you, but Ian will know this. If you, if you find something like that, you go, oh, that's juicy. Better stick that in the yeah. book. Yeah, the, the one the one thing I wanted the one thing I wanted to get in the book that I couldn't get in the book was something I found when I was researching these internment camps, which is that the um, the actor Tom Conti's dad was one person who was interned. Um, uh, he was he, he was an educating Rita amongst many other things. Tom Conti. Well, his dad was locked up having an Italian surname in the Isle of Man for several years, as far as I, I know. But I just couldn't quite shoehorn it in, so I'm telling you instead. Was it Shirley <laughs> Valentine? Was it not Shirley Valentine he was in? Yeah. You said educating Oh, no, Rita. I said educating Rita. I meant Shirley Valentine. Yeah, uh, sorry. You're getting your readers <laughs> and your Shirley's mixed up. I know. It's almost the same story. Almost the same story. That just means now, Ian, you know, for all the, the promo you'll be doing for the book and interviews like this, you can drop that story in. Absolutely. My Tom Conti story. <laughs> your Tom Conti story can be shared. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and it was a big birthday for you, Ian, wasn't it, earlier in, earlier in the year? Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 in back at the end of April, I turned sixty during the, the middle of lockdown, which oh, was he great. doesn't look it. Uh, God bless you. But you know, I, I used my one hour of permitted exercise to stick a can of beer and a glass in my pocket, walk to the Oxford bar, open the beer, drink it in the street, and then walk home again. Yeah, I'd been looking forward to getting my bus pass. You know, in Scotland, you can get a a bus pass, and you get free bus travel throughout Scotland. And I've been looking forward to that so much. And, of course, I can't do it because all the libraries are closed, and that's where you go to get your free bus pass. Um, and even if I could get my free bus pass, I wonder if I would want to take a bus at the moment full of coughing, wheezing strangers without, without wearing a medical-grade mask uh, and wiping everything down with Dettol before I sit down. Yes, yeah, probably not the, not the greatest time, really, to have celebrated a birthday or indeed get on a bus so alas alas, <laughs> alas. and I, I mean I, you know I've, I've been sharing quite a lot in common with rebus and right at the start of this book um he moves from the flat he's lived in since the series started in 1987 
he actually moves because he's got COPD and he can't handle the stairs anymore. Um, and I, you know, just uh, less than a year ago, less than a year before I started writing the book, I'd also downsized, moved. And so some of the stuff he went through, which was uh, having to turf out furniture and having to sort of thin out his books and his records and stuff, I'd been through that very painful process. So I was kind of, you know, living, reliving it through him, really. Um, and then bizarrely, just a week or two ago on Twitter, somebody said, oh, hey, have you seen this real estate listing in Edinburgh? And it's basically Rebus's flat is up for sale uh, in real life. And I just thought, what a bizarre coincidence that, uh, you know, I'm, as, I'm, as he is going to flit, as he's going to move in a book that comes out in October, um, that his flat is actually up for sale. That's amazing. But he doesn't alphabetize his books or his records, Ian. And please tell me that you do. I, I have literally just started. I, <laughs> during lockdown, during, I don't do a books, actually. Um, during lockdown, I decided I was going to alphabetize for the first time ever my vinyl and my CDs. And that was a fun few days. I mean, it was a really good fun few days. Oh, you'll never look back once you've done it. Well, no, I mean, but you know what? There was something nice about, oh, where's that Lloyd Cole album? And instead of that, you find a Van Morrison or a Rory Gallagher and you play that instead. You know, there was that kind of pick and mix thing. And you always, I mean, you know, I like to think that I've got good taste. So any album I found would be a good album to listen to. It's just it wouldn't be the album I was necessarily looking <laughs> for. And now I can find any album uh, at any time of the day or night. And so I've lost that slight element of surprise which used to come with my music collection. You don't know how you haven't alphabetized your books, though. I haven't. I don't know why I've not done that. Um, I mean, some of our books are alphabetized. I think we, we paid our son to alphabetize the crime books in the hall of the, the flat we live in. But uh, the books in my office, no. And I'll, you'll, I'll go looking for something and think, I've not got... I mean, you know, when West Wind came out last year, I looked along my bookshelves for the, a paperback edition of it, and I've not got one. I'm, I'm sure I've not. It's not that I can't find it. It's that I just physically don't have a copy of West Wind anymore. Are you a, are you a stickler for alphabetizing then, Steve, a bit like me? Not hugely. I am now because uh, Mrs. Kavanagh got me to do it and um, <laughs> we moved into the new house. So I moved in January. Um, I've alphabetized my books because it was better doing that because I have seen pictures online of people who arrange their books by the colours on the spine. <laughs> and that's just weird. As You're just a weirdo if you do that. I think there's something deeply wrong with you. <laughs> there's been some deep-seated childhood trauma and you should really seek immediate uh, medical help if you do that. That's just all wrong. <laughs> um, and of course, you haven't just been uh, sorting your books out, Steve, or indeed um, finishing this novel because you also host a podcast don't you yes um so for those who may not know of it yet why don't you give it a little sell oh thank you very much i had to pay you that fiver <laughs> later on joe um that's it mate yeah paypal will do. paypal <laughs> um we we have uh, we launched a podcast with uh, mr rankin actually who agreed to be our very first guest on the show um, and there's That's a, a pretty good first guest. Yeah, he it? was our first guest on two crime writers and a microphone. One one crime writer, I think you'll find Steve. One crime writer and a microphone. Yeah, was, uh, yes. What do you see on our big launch day when we arranged this interview with Ian? It was only my podcast partner, Luca Veste, who interviewed uh, Mr. Rankin that day because I had to be at a status quo concert that night. <laughs> <laughs> 
so because it was my my it was my mate's birthday and he had got like a box, you know, for us at the status quo. So I had to go to the status quo concert. So I missed the interview with Mr. Rankin. He has since been on the show. And I was there. I wasn't at status quo. But um so there you are. But no, the the podcast is we we get a, a crime writer on and we try to have like a real conversation with them. Um, because neither Luca nor I are good interviewers. So we just have a chat, like a chat we would have if we were in a bar at a festival. So people get to know the author and their likes and dislikes and their tastes, what they're reading, what they're watching, and who they are as people. Um, and we have a lot of fun and a lot of laughs, so we enjoy doing it. And um, we just com completed our first online festival this year, the Locked Up Festival. And again, Mr. Rankin was a big part of that, talking to Jenny Godley. So we have, we, it's gone from strength to strength. It's it's good fun. You will learn nothing uh, about books, <laughs> really. Sometimes we have a guest on, we don't even mention their their book that they're on trying to sell. Um, so it, it's 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 a bit of a laugh. I was I was actually going to mention the, the locked up festival, Steve, because I mean you know I was a participant in that festival, but also I was a punter. I mean I paid my money, as did my wife, and we. I mean the whole weekend was just a joy, and it still I think is the gold standard for. Um, for online book festivals, and I've done a few now. And the, the the feeling was, I mean, this is something that only came about, all these online book festivals, because of the lockdown and because physical book festivals could no longer operate. But the feedback that I was getting, because as you, as you listened or you watched these events, there was a little kind of scrolling thing down the side of the screen where people who were watching and listening could actually talk to each other, you know, send messages to each other. And you were getting, so there was instant feedback about what people were liking or not liking about the event. And it made it very communal because you can't do that in a room. If you've got 400, 500 people in a room, they're not all nodding and chatting to each other while they're watching. But there was that ability to do that. So that was one thing. But that thing has been communal is it was affordable. Not everybody can afford to go to the Edinburgh Book Festival. You know, you've got your tickets, your train tickets or whatever. You've got nights in a hotel or a B&B. An online book festival uh, is, is affordable for all concerned. The only downside is for the authors who don't get to sell books on the well, back of it. And that's when well, you say that, but we sold a lot of books on the Locked Up Festival through Waterstones. We had a special promo code and they took, we got an email from them to say every single author who participated sold more than one book, which is good. And, you know, a lot of people sold a lot of books. So that was that was good, but we don't thank you very much for that. You just want a fiver as well, don't you? <laughs> I want Joe's fiver. <laughs> well, thank you. All right, once it comes into my PayPal, I'll send it on to yours in. <laughs> Cheers, mate. <laughs> yeah, it's a great thing, Steve, and, and Ian's absolutely right, and, and great that we've um, been able to mention it. Obviously, a lot of festivals have been doing this you know because they've they've sort of had to and if they've wanted to have a festival this year that's that's the way that it's been but was it was it fun for you I'm sure it was a lot of work as well but was it ultimately a you know something that you were pleased with and, and happy to have done yeah we were really happy with it I mean we did it for charity so it was 20 pounds mm. for a full weekend pass and we donated all the money to the Trussell Trust who were supporting food banks all across the UK. And so that was good. It was a lot of stress trying to get it all organised. And Luca almost had a, an aneurysm because he was doing the technical side of things. So it was it was a lot of work, but it was really fun because we we put a lot of our own ethos into the festival. So we had panels like the World's Worst Book Events where we had authors on talking about 
the t- the absolute disastrous um, <laughs> book signings and events and travel and all that they'd had, and I think people like that because it you know it's not all you know champagne and and cocktails and and publishers dinners and hundreds and hundreds of people in an audience. Quite often it goes disastrously wrong, and that's what people <laughs> like all that. So that was kind of the ethos of it, and that carried the whole thing forward. Everyone seemed to have a really good time. It's very relaxed. And as Ian said, there was a great community forming online. So, yeah, it was good. I don't know if we'll do it again. We'll have to get some kind of medication for Luca before we do it again. <laughs> but we'll, we'll see. Having just dissed physical book festivals, I should say that I was absolutely gutted because right at the beginning of lockdown, I had been preparing to fly to Virginia in the USA to appear on stage with John Grisham. No. Uh, Yeah, a one-on-one conversation at a Virginia Book Festival. And of course, it got cancelled. And whether it can happen again another year, I don't know. It'll depend on various diaries. But I haven't met him very briefly, just the once. I was really looking forward to that conversation. That would have been awesome. What a great event that would have been. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully, um, it can it can happen again, maybe in the new yeah. year, because that's uh, oh, what a shame! If only it had been a few weeks earlier, you might have actually got got out to do I know, it. I know, I <laughs> know. But again, because we're do, because we're now doing distance festivals, so um, bloody Scotland this year, which will happen, is happening online only, and um, I've managed to to persuade Lawrence Block, one of my all time favourite crime writers, yeah. to do a one on one event with me, which he can do from his armchair in New York. So, you know, he'll be in New York, I'll be in Edinburgh. People will be watching from all over the world. Because the other thing that events like Stephen Lucas Festival showed us is that people from all over the world will tune into these events. Um, so suddenly you're not just stuck with a local audience. You've got you've got the world at your fingertips, as it were. Yeah. And I'm just really looking forward to... Um, I mean, I'm looking forward to it because he Lawrence Block interviewed me at the BoucherCon in St. Petersburg, Florida, a year or two back. And, I'll, and I've always wanted to interview him. So this is a chance for me to to get to, to, to do that. The, the one thing that does stick in my mind from St. Petersburg, apart from the interview with him, though, is there was a charity auction, which sometimes happens at these things. And there were two winners. They both made the same amount of money to be in the next Rebus novel. And the organizer said the winners are Lee Child and Karen Slaughter. <laughs> <laughs> so in A Song for the Dark Times, they are, both appear. Um, now, I thought I cannot have characters called Lee Child and Karen Slaughter. I mean, it's just nobody would believe that it's not them. So I had to have, it had to be them themselves. It had to be the real authors who were appearing at a book festival in Edinburgh. And uh, yeah, they both got a mention. So the, 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 the money all went to charity. But uh, so Rebus has been outed as a Lee Child fan in this book. Excellent. <laughs> and you've honoured the um, auction as well. So that it's all worked out quite well, really. Have you ever done it, Steve? Put real people in for charity events? No, no. That's something I would do, you know, if someone wanted me to do it. Um, certainly would. It certainly saves you having to think up character names, buddy. You know, it saves you having all that work of thinking up a name <laughs> because you've actually... Yeah, yeah. It might be slightly fraught with danger, though. What if somebody doesn't like what you've done with them? Well, there is the... There is the I mean, I had one woman, she paid for her cat to be in one of my books. And she sent me a full psychological breakdown of her cat and photographs and everything to make sure that it would be her cat, Boethius. It would be her cat, Boethius, not just a cat called Boethius in my book. She was hard work. Um, they're, they're, usually not, they're usually not hard work. 
My senior crimes guy, he's been in the last three or four book, um, Haj Atwal, he's the guy in charge of senior crimes in the Rebus novels. He runs the um, Subway sandwich franchise for the whole of Scotland in real life. <laughs> Fantastic. That's see? brilliant. It's amazing. Brilliant. Well, Steve, when there's an auction, I'll be there and I'll see if I can uh, out outbid whoever else is there. So um, maybe you can create some sort of judge or something out of me. I could do, you know, uh, his honour, Judge Haddo. Judge Haddo. That sounds, yeah, it's got a ring to it. I'll do it for free if you want. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I tell you what, you, you do it for free and I'll uh, I'll donate to a charity of all your choice. You donate something. How about that? Yeah. yeah, very good. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we get to our book off, which is where each of you is going to tell us about a book you love and you think that we should all read, uh, that we may have read or not read, um, the book you're talking about. Before we do that, I'd just like to know what you've been reading recently. And when Ian and I got together at the Oxford Bar in previous years gone by, we've often talked about that or about music. So um, what's been um, on the on the bookshelves and what have you been sort of dipping into recently, Ian? Well, uh, yeah, I, I mean, during lockdown, like a lot of people, I thought this is it. I'm going to read the Brothers Karamazov or Don Quixote. Instead of which, I turned to books that I've either previously loved and I reread them, or else I've been looking for some, you know, short, easy to read books. So I've, I've been reading the Maigre novels, which you know I dipped into in the past, but not really paid a huge amount of attention to. And I've read, I've read three. I bought four, and I've read three out of the four so far, and they're fine. They're all right, you know. I mean, I, I think the character's terrific. I think Paris, you get a fantastic sense of it. It's mysteries. They're not quite as convoluted as I would like. Um, and and, and I was, in the first book, spoiler alert, one of Maigret's colleagues is murdered. And then, below me, I read the next one, and he's back. He's, he's alive again. And Simonon had obviously forgotten he'd bumped this guy off. And he just brought him back to life as though nothing had happened. And I just thought that was extraordinary. This was obviously written in the days before editors and um, and, and proofreaders. Mind you, the guy was writing, what, 12 books a year or something and had a ferocious sex life. So something had to fall through the cracks somewhere. <laughs> wow. 12, 12 books a year whilst trying to keep up a very active sex life. What a busy man. Um and what about you, Steve? Have you have you been reading for pleasure? Uh, yeah, I had to say at the start of this whole thing, I, I really struggled to read fiction. 
So I I read a, a lot of nonfiction. I got through a couple of Martin Amos no, um, nonfiction collections and a few other things. And then I, I thank God I got my my novel reading mojo back. So I've I've read a couple of great books this year. I just finished Daughters of Night by Laura Shepard Robinson, which is a great sort of historical romp about uh, lords and ladies and thief takers and uh, all sorts of shenanigans and murder in around 1780 in London, which I, I thought was was really, really well done, really well written. Um, one of the books this year, although I read it um, last year, was uh, Blacktop Wasteland by Sean Cosby, S.A. Cosby, which is a fantastic um, rural uh, noir with fantastic car chases in it. And I'm just at the moment, I'm reading John Connolly's The Dirty South, his new Charlie Parker, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. And I've got Ian's on my to-be-read pile as well. John uh, is featuring on this very series of uh, Book Off, and uh, he talks about that novel. So for anyone listening who's a fan of John and hasn't got to that book yet, you might want to tune in to his episode, um, which is available with all the others. So um, thank you for that, gents. It's time for the Book Off now. And uh, before we give you each your three minutes, I just want to know what books you're putting up for The War of the Words. So Ian, what's your chosen book for the Book Off? I'm I'm choosing a, a kind of slightly well a very left field book, The Driver's Seat by Muriel Spark. Yes, excellent. And Steve, what about you? I really struggled with this, so but I in, in the end I went for Stephen King's Misery. <laughs> wow, what a battle! Um, so we need to decide who goes first and who goes second. And Ian, I'll uh, give you that decision. Would you like to? Get it out of the way, or do you want to hear what uh, what Steve does and see if you can better it? Um, yeah, Steve, you go first. Right, okay. <laughs> um, which means, uh, Steve, you have to decide the choice of weapon for uh, when the three minutes come up. You don't have to use all three, by the way. If you bring it in under three, that's fine. But if you're still talking at the three-minute mark, we will either give you a bicycle honk or... Um, old school bell to ring you out so which one would you like oh i can't resist a honk you're gonna get the honk okay <laughs> um well i'm putting three minutes on the clock and it's all over to you steve uh, to tell us about misery by stephen king thank you um misery i think is one of the greatest suspense novels um that i've ever read and possibly one of the greatest that's ever written um present company accepted with mr rankin of course but it's a story it's it's a non-supernatural story of a writer called Paul Sheldon who writes a series called Misery Shasti in the Misery series and what happens is he's in a car wreck uh, out in the woods in the snow and he is rescued thankfully by a lady called Annie Wilkes who brings him home and she used to be a nurse so she's able to splint his his fractured legs and give him painkillers but what then he realizes is that Annie uh, knew uh, he was there in that area in the little log cabin where he finishes all his latest misery books and she had been trailing him and she is his number one fan and Annie is very unbalanced and doesn't like the new Paul Sheldon book because misery is killed and Paul is trapped in the house with Annie and must escape or suffer the ever-increasing consequences and punishments for his writing and his authorly ways. 
That's me. You can honk away. Woohoo! I can honk away. I want, I want my honk. Hold up. There you go. You get it. You get it. I had to just pump a bit of air into it. Um, oh, you, you sort of, you, you took me by surprise there because I thought, oh, he's got, he's got ages yet. But no, you just, here we are. Short to the point. Um, very good. Take a, take a break now, Steve. Have a breather. Um, it, it, it will come on to talk about the film, no doubt, because um, it, this is one of those cases for me personally where it's very hard to hear Paul Sheldon and Annie Wilkes and not think of the actors from yes. the film. Um, but anyway, that is uh, for a, a discussion in a moment. Uh, you have a rest now, and I'm going to put three minutes back on the clock. And it's over to you, Ian, to tell us about Muriel Sparks' The Driver's Seat. Yes, well, let me start by talking about the film of Misery. It's a great film, and you should watch it if you've not seen it. The film of The Driver's Seat, Avoid at All Costs. Um, it's a, it's an absolute travesty. It features Elizabeth Taylor. It features Andy Warhol. Half the actors in it are, are speaking Italian, but then it's all dubbed, and Elizabeth Taylor has no idea what they're saying to her because the Italian actors are speaking in Italian. Um, so, yes, don't watch the film, but do read the book. Muriel Spark, amazing Scottish novelist. You will know her from the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, but every book she wrote was different. Um, and the driver's seat is heavily influenced by uh, the Nouvelle Vague, by, by uh, the, the Nouvelle Roman, um, by um, uh, people like Alarobe Grillet, the, the French experimental writer. It's a very short, elliptical book. It's 100 pages long, if that. Um, and it's about a woman who decides to go on holiday so she can be murdered. Spoiler alert. Um, so she's basically, it's kind of almost like suicide by cop. She's gone on holiday specifically to look for someone who will bump her off. And it opens with her at the air, uh, trying on a dress. And the assistant says, this dress doesn't stain. It's a brand new material. And she goes, that's appalling. I don't want a dress that doesn't stain. You think, why? Because she wants to, she wants to fill the limelight. She's been nothing in her life. She's an anonymous woman. She wants a splash, literally almost. She wants to win the front page of the newspapers by taking part in a gruesome murder of which she will be the victim. So, the driver's seat. Is she the passenger? Is she the victim? Or is she in the driver's seat? Is she the one who's actually behind all this, making it happen? And so she actually has a kind of, you know, she's, she's the, 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 the one who's going to make this role play out. So it's a bizarre story. Um, it takes all kinds of twists and turns. She eventually befriends a man, but it's not the right man. Or she doesn't think it's the right man. She's still looking for someone who's going to kill her. Uh, and on it goes through this weird European landscape. You're never sure which country it's in. You're not sure which country she's from. Um, you can read it in an afternoon. It will never leave you. Once you have read this book, it will stay with you forever. It's the strangest, creepiest crime novel I've ever read. And it's not even a crime novel. Oh, very good. Brought it in with 30 seconds to spare there, Ian. Fab. Um, Oh, wow. Both brilliant pictures. Thank you. And both brilliant choices of books. Now, I've read both of these and I really, really love them. Steve, just a, a little note back on Misery. Um, I love that you said, you know, it's one of the greatest suspense novels ever because it, you, you're absolutely right. And the reason I mention the film is because I sadly saw the film first. I say sadly just because... You know, I always would, I would always prefer to, to read the book before seeing the film. But, you know, as Ian says, the film is really, really, really great. And uh, but it left it left me with <laughs> with the image of, you know, the actors then when I read the book. But it was it's such a brilliant, 
brilliant novel, isn't it? And I imagine for you as a crime writer, it's just something. There's something really inspiring about it, probably in terms of how it's influenced your writing. And oh, it's it's hugely inspiring, and continue. I continue to learn from it and kind of steal little things from it, because if you're writing a suspense, you know, book or a thriller. You know, you don't have to have your protagonist, you know, desperately searching for the bomb as it's ticking down, you know, to zero. For You have, don't have to have all of that massive build-up and shenanigans around something. Brilliant suspense can come from something really small. Like, there's a bit where Paul is trying to get out into the hallway to see if he can escape, and he, he's made a, a lock pick out of a paperclip, and he drops the paperclip. And he, you know, there's a scene where he has to bend down and pick that up from his wheelchair. And, you know, you're lucky if you're not tearing the book in half reading that. It's so <laughs> suspenseful. And it's such an ordinary thing. And that, I think, is King's gift. People say he's a horror writer. I tend to think of him more as a suspense. It's a suspense in everything he does. Obviously, there is brilliant horror and, and frights in his novels. But this is an absolute masterpiece. And Annie Wilkes is the most terrifying villain I think I've ever... I think she scares me more than Hannibal Lecter. Because Hannibal Lecter's kind of <laughs> yeah, charming. she does. But Annie Wilkes is just completely unhinged, you know? And she will get angry at Paul if he swears. And it's a kind of a dance, because he catches on to this, and it's a dance between him and her in terms of their dialogue, where he's trying to steer her away from getting cross... And, you know, kind of manipulate her a little bit. So there's brilliant suspense, even in a mundane conversation about soup. You know, there's the, you're just, you're on total tenterhooks the whole time she's there. And the book and the movie, the movie's brilliant. It's a fantastic script by William Goldman, who was the best screenwriter ever, in my opinion. And uh, Rob Reiner did a brilliant job directing it. And because it's only, it all takes place basically in one room. But it's an incredible setup. And, and the book is much more gruesome than the movie. That's all I'll say. They're different in certain respects. So I would advise people to read the book first and then watch the movie. Yes, if you've if you've not read it or seen it, then absolutely do that. Read Misery and then and then enjoy the film. Both brilliant. Um that's great. And and Ian, I'm so thrilled that you chose the driver's seat because I read it about a year ago, a couple of years ago, I think. And God, I love a short book. And hearing you talk about it made me think, gosh, is it definitely only about 100 pages? Because there's so, there's so much in it. Her journey and like every, everything that you learn about her. And yeah, I just, I just think it's a really, really brilliant novel that perhaps isn't as well known as, well, her, her other works. But it's, it's just such an interesting premise. Yeah, I mean, it's a much more experimental book than some of them. She really was influenced by people like Alain Robgrier, and that comes across. Everything in the book means something. Everything that happens to the, the main character means something in the greater scheme of things. And so it's like a detective story to that extent. I mean, starting, you know, at the beginning, if you pick it up and you've not had me give you all the spoilers, when you read that bit and she's <laughs> suddenly getting very upset because an assistant has told her that the dress she's going to buy is stainless. Um, you think, why is she getting upset? What's wrong with her? And then you get a description of her flat where she lives, and it's extraordinary. It's like all clean lines. There's no, everything's hidden away in drawers or hidden away behind things. So it's like an empty room. And it's like she's kind of hiding stuff from you all the way along. And then she sits beside a guy on the, she, she buys a loud scarf at the airport. She buys a, 
a gaudy book with a gaudy cover. She buys a letter opener, which is quite sharp. All of this, these are all signifiers. These are all, tell these are all clues for the reader to pick up that what's actually going on here. And it just gets darker and darker towards the end as she is kind of submitting, spoiler alert again, as she is submitting to the person who's going to kill her. And you're thinking, geez, what is, you know, what state are you in for this to happen? And she, she accomplishes what she sets out to accomplish, which is to make the front page of the newspapers. And the reason these spoilers are not really spoilers is because Muriel Spark, being an experimental writer, foreshadows everything all the way through. She, she flashes forward and tells you her, she would soon be murdered and be on the front page of every international newspaper. And you go, what, what? And, but you've got to, it's like a trip to hell. <laughs> And you've got to go with her. There's no way of escaping it. Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant way of describing the book because it really is fabulous. Um, well, I love both of those, gents, and I think you've you've each picked an absolute corker. But I've got to pick one to take home, and uh, I think I think it's got to be Muriel Spark. Uh, I think it's you, Ian, to take it home this time because uh, I think a lot more people will know Misery and perhaps not as many will know this wonderful book, and they should definitely definitely pick it up thank you both so much for your time and for being here and for your fabulous recommendations and your wonderful insight as always a song for the dark times by ian rankin and 5050 by steve Kavanagh are both out now they're published by orion and they're absolutely bloody brilliant so we recommend you getting yourself a copy and alphabetizing them in the right place on your bookshelves <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> Gents, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope the next time we meet, it'll be in person and there may be drink taken. Um, Ian, Steve, thanks so much. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.